teenager because that's the age when a lot of people just disappear. And all through my teenage years, I was there. And John, Vicky, the leadership kind of, um, they, just, they just believed in us in a way that, I don't know if you remember, but you got like one of the worship leaders taught me to play guitar. And every week I used to come along and at the beginning I used to sit in the front row facing the worship team and play along guitar with them. And then eventually I got the guts to play alongside and then eventually got the guts to sing. And then eventually I like, started leading worship. Um, and these guys just put faith in a, a kid like 16, 17 years old and gave me a space. And that involvement kept me coming back to church. In years when, when there was times where as a teenager I was messing around, I was still in church on Sunday morning because I had responsibility and I felt there's call of God on my life. And um, without that, I don't know where I would be in my walk. I don't know, maybe God would have used something else, but this is what he used. So I'm really grateful to you guys uh, for that. Um, you guys look the exact same as you did like 20 years ago. <laughs> Um, I don't know whether that means you looked old then, uh, or it means that you still look young now. Um, but uh, but you like, <laughs> yeah, whatever you're doing, you're doing right. Um, as Johnny said, I pastor a church in Bray, my greatest privilege, uh, one of my greatest privileges, my greatest privilege is to be married to my beautiful wife, Patrice. We've been blessed with one little daughter, Penny, seven years old, a bundle of energy and light and love still makes us laugh every single day. I'm so thankful to God for them. And then God has given me a space where I get to wake up every morning and follow the plans of God in tangible ways and that I get to work for a church called Liberty Church in Bray that I pastor. I've pastored for the past five years or so. Before that, I was working along with Noel, who's running the other seminar in Liberty Church in the city. Um, and then I also run a project called One Day, um, which we started two or three years ago, um, and is a project based in Lesotho, which is a tiny little country completely surrounded by South Africa, about the size of Northern Ireland. Um, and in Lesotho, one out of every three children is an orphan due to the, the HIV AIDS epidemic. One out of every three kids. And we're on a mission there to provide them with loving, safe family homes. So I split my time between those who I just came back from a month in Lesotho working now on church trying to catch up with that just when I'm caught up with that I'll be heading off to Lesotho again in September come back do the same head again again in December back and forth between the two um, but living the most adventurous blessed life you could imagine in God um, I'm so privileged so blessed I've been given about an hour at this stage right to um, to speak to you guys about the father heart of God which on one way, on one level, if I try to communicate just the awesomeness or the sheer incredibleness of what it means that, uh, that God has adopted you as his child, like an hour doesn't do it justice, right? But on the other side of things, an hour is a long time to listen to one person speak, yeah? Like, I like me and I wouldn't want to listen to me for, for an hour. Um, so what we'll do is I'll try and end a bit early and we'll leave space for, for Q and A stuff. So if you have any Qs, note them down and I'll try and A them at the end when, uh, when you ask them, yeah? Um, what I want to do is maybe split what I had, the time I have into three. First thing I want to do is to look at some of the biblical basis for what it means that we're adopted by God. What it means that God calls himself our father. The implications of that. How has that come to be? Second, what I'd love to do then is just share with you some of my story. Having like built a platform from the scripture of this truth, I want to show you how that became real in my life. And then lastly, I'll tell you a bit more about that one day project in Lesotho because it exists as an expression of the father heart of God to kids who don't have any fathers. So hopefully the three of them tie together. Let me pray before we get into scripture. Lord, bless you for this time. 
Father, you know that I've prepared some things to say, but I just, I even say right now, Lord, and ask right now that your voice would be the loudest voice in the room, that, uh, that it would speak more than I have to say. It would speak beyond what I have to say. Lord, if all we're doing is gathering to hear good ideas from a man or from a woman, then, then, then we're wasting our time, Lord, when we could hear from you. So I ask that your Holy Spirit would move. And if it's through something I say or beyond something I say in the way that you just spark people's imaginations by the power of your spirit, we say that that's what we want now. We set aside this time, Lord. Would you make it holy? Would you make it a time that you could use to speak to your people? We're yours, gathered in your name for your glory, for your plans and for your purposes, Lord. Take these moments, Lord God, and use them in the way that you determine you want to use them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let me, let me just put up some scriptures. Andrew, I made some slides there. I want us to look first at Ephesians chapter, chapter 1. Just to prepare, to put God's word first and foremost. Yeah, everything else that I say after is just commentary. If God has spoken, let's give his word the attention that it deserves. And here's what it says in Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 6. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. And one of the things when I look at this scripture that, that stands out to me the most is just the repeating of the kind of phrase where it talks about us being in Christ. Yeah, it's, it's, it's there and there again. He's blessed us in Christ, you see, on the second line, in the heavenly places. And the, um, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Um, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And then the very last words, which he has blessed us in the beloved. That something has happened because we find ourselves in Christ. Paul repeats this again and again, the idea of being in Christ and how that's going to change us. See, what he's pointing to is the fact that what Jesus has done for us has, has changed us completely from the inside out. And if we're found in him, his heart is that we, we come to understand what it is that, that he has actually done for us. So what I want to do, just briefly, before I even get to adoption, is just, is just explain to you what these verses tell us that Jesus has done for you and what it means to be in Christ. Effectively, what I want to do is preach the gospel to you. Now, I'm sure if you're in this room, you already know the gospel, yeah? But, but you know that we never graduate from the gospel. We just get more of the gospel, that the same gospel that saved us is the same gospel that, that sanctifies us. The gospel that justifies us is the gospel that, that changes us as we, as we dwell upon it, as we research it, as we look into it, as God uses it to change us from the inside out. So what we want to do is, is just explain what Jesus has done for us. At the beginning of these verses, we see Jesus described as the Son of God, or God described as his Father. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just before we get to the end, it starts off with Jesus as the Son of God, but just before we get to the end, we see there that God has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. So we have, we have two kind of different sons going on here. We have Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, but he doesn't stay the only Son of God. He remains the only begotten Son of God. But Jesus opens up to us a way to be adopted by the Father, that we become adopted sons 
and daughters of God. We become adopted children of God. So what happens between those two verses, between God just being the father of the Lord Jesus Christ and between him predestining us for adoption, is it speaks about some of the things that Jesus has done for us. If you look in verse 4, it says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless. Somehow, being in Christ has made us those, those two things. It's made us holy, and it's made us, us blameless. And if you delve down into them, you'll see that they, they unpack or uncover kind of two halves of the gospel message. And very often as Christians, or for a lot of my Christian life, I was unaware of kind of the second half of the gospel. When I would hear the gospel preached, I would hear this, the gospel of the, the preaching of the forgiveness of sins. There's some sin that separates you from God. Something that you've done, you've done wrong. Like some, some way that you failed to live up to the standard. And that punishment was necessary. Here's what God did in his grace. God sends his only son to take your punishment. Yeah? To make you blameless if we want to take that word out. That he takes the blame for the things that we've done and he takes punishment in our place. And that's absolutely true and it's incredible. That's what, what Jesus does. He takes the blame. But then how do we become holy? Well, what, 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 what often happens in Christianity is that we start off with the gospel thinking that the gospel is just this forgiveness of sins bit and then the holiness is up to us. So the holiness is now, we, we, we start like obeying all the rules, we start working hard, we start looking at, uh, at the religious kind of aspects of things, like making changes in our lives. And yes, our lives should change. And yes, they will change. But what the gospel tells us is that in the same moment that we believed in God and that he made us blameless, that God also made us, made us holy. That God gave us his righteousness. See, pre-cross, here's, here's where we're at. Pre-cross, we're at this space where we stand before God. We stand like with, with, with blame on our shoulders. We stand before God in a way that, that we couldn't hope to. We just, we're just deserving of judgment, yeah? Whereas Jesus stands before God blameless and perfect. He comes and he lives the perfect life. Obeys God, not just to the letter of the law, but to the, to the heart of the law. Jesus uh, lives a perfect life in every way, resists temptation at every turn, does everything right. And so, as humans, we fail to live up to the standard, we deserve God's wrath. As Jesus, the perfect Son of God, he lives up to the standard and deserves God's reward. Now, here's what happens at the cross. This great exchange happens, where in the same way that God comes and he, he punishes Jesus for our record, what God also does is he takes Jesus' record and he gives it to us. And that's an audacious claim to make. Because, I mean, it sounds incredible that we could be forgiven. And it sounds like good enough to even just be forgiven. But God just doesn't leave us forgiven. It says that he also gives us the righteousness of Christ. I heard it described this way. That we get the full benefit of Christ's righteous life as if we'd lived it ourselves. So what God determined he was going to give to Jesus, the life, the, the reward from God that Jesus deserved for living the perfect life, we get in his place. He takes our place and we get his place. He makes us holy. And that kind of interaction of, of us being forgiven, but also having this righteousness, this record given to us before God is what we call our justification, yeah? That we've been made right before God. 
Now, if that's where the story ended, that would be grace upon grace upon grace. Imagine that, that, that just through faith in Jesus, that this is what happens. No more are our sins counted against us. We can stand before God, not just with a record that's been wiped clean, but with a record that's now been credited the righteousness of Jesus before God, right? That's an incredible thing, but that's not even the height of it. The height of it, the apex of the doctrine, the thing that Paul is pointing to us here is that we were made holy and blameless before him so that what happens in the next verse can happen, that we can be adopted to himself as sons. Do you see the sequence? God forgives us. God gives us Jesus' righteousness. Why? So he can adopt us as his children. God wants to adopt us as, as his children. Like, too often when we use the word uh, father for God, it loses, its, it loses its meaning. We all learn in school. We rattle off the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. We rattle off those two words like they're commonplace. The most revolutionary words in the world. God is saying, Jesus is saying, here's what you call God in heaven, the creator and sustainer of all things who existed before the universe existed, who will exist if the universe ceases to exist. Here's what you call him. You call him Father. J.I. Packer said, this father is the Christian name for God. And that's revolutionary. That's, that's incredible. That's not something that should be humdrum or normal to us. Like the, 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 the amazingness of that needs to take hold in our heart that God not only saves us, that he not only redeems us, that he not only justifies us before him, not only wipes our slate clean, not only gives us a new record, but he does all of that so he can open up a new relational basis between you and him where you can call him father and he can call you his child. It's not just that everybody is a child of God. Some Pharisees came to Jesus one time and he's like, sure, we're all Abraham's children, we're all sons of God. And he's like, he's like if you were the sons of God, you'd recognize me. You're sons of, of the enemy. John says this, behold, what love that the, the Father has lavished upon us that we get to be called children of God. We're not just children of God in some generic sense. God has adopted us as sons into his family. Now, if you think about it. If you think about what it means to be, to be adopted, you're thinking you're going to obligate yourself to somebody. Like the purpose of God saving you, the purpose of God justifying you, the purpose of God redeeming you is so that he can adopt you as his child. If we flick over to the next, the next verse, Andrew, um, I'm only going to point out just like kind of two words in this. We'll read it all. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, you're an heir through God. The two words I want you to focus on are at the end of, uh, of the line where it says, uh, to redeem those who are under the law, at the end of the third line, so that we might receive adoption as sons. What's the reason that Jesus came to redeem you from under the law? So that you could receive his adoption as a son. The purpose of it, the reason Jesus came was so that you could be adopted. In the previous verses we looked at, it says that God predestined this before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God wanted to be your father. Before he'd created a universe, let alone created you, God decided he wanted to be your father. Why? It says in verse 6 in the previous one, to the praise of his glory. It's like God thought up before he creates the universe. What's the best way that I can express my glory and my grace and the nature of who I am to 
to the world. And he decides that it's going to be through this, through the adoption of human beings as his children. It's a huge thing. It's an incredible thing. Think about it on a physical level. If, if you were to adopt a child, what are you promising to do? You're promising to, to become their father, yeah? Not just in name, not just as a metaphor, but in a, in a real way, you're promising to love them, promising to provide for them. You're promising to protect them. You're promising a level of intimacy with them. You're promising that they're going to be rolled into your inheritance. You're promising to want the best for them. You're promising to not leave them alone. You're promising to discipline them and to shape them into the people who you would want them to be. And that's exactly what God does when he adopts us as children. See, justification by faith alone, incredible, incredible thing, amazing thing God has done for us. But even at that, it speaks of like a, a legal kind of relationship. We're justified before a judge. What God does is he stops being judge to us and he adopts us and changes his name from judge to, to father and opens up a whole new level of relationship, a whole new possibility. And in these verses, you see, the son was involved in it. The son came and paid the price for it, yeah? The father sends his son because it's his heart. And then you see the Holy Spirit comes uh, into our hearts and he enables us to cry, Abba, Father. He enables us to realize we're no longer slaves. He enables us to realize the inheritance that we have in God because we are his children. We're redeemed so that we could take a hold of this adoption. And uh I'll just tell you some of my story of how this became real in my life. Because um, I can hold these out there as like abstract truths. And do you ever say something and you're like, that's just words. Do you know, like, like they don't fully communicate the, like, the madness of what God has done for us, right? They're just, it nearly sounds like to, to, to just use words doesn't, doesn't do it justice. And uh, this became real in my life. Um, and I'd have heard all of this stuff before, Yeah. I grew up hearing this stuff. I grew up in church. I remember, I don't know how many sermons I've heard, thousands over my lifetime. Like there's, there's stuff that you think you know and so because you think you know it, you just detach and it kind of goes over your head. But I found myself at one point really questioning, uh, questioning my faith. Um, man, I've, I've, I've had the privilege of, uh, of, of walking with God for my whole life or of God walking with me for my whole life. I've been absolutely blessed to have been raised in a Christian home. My mom and dad both got saved in the late 70s, um, and then I was born in the early 80s. My dad had been a heroin addict, um, radically saved by the Lord, life transformed by God. Absolutely incredible testimony of what God did for him. Somebody came and told him about Jesus when he was in the hospital going through withdrawals. And, uh, and God took his life and changed his life and made it that I, I, I was raised in a home where it was like, I describe it like this sometimes, it's like the grass is green, the sky is blue and God has a plan for your life. Just the facts that you learn when you're a kid, the things you just accept as being true, the, the, the kind of like non-negotiable stuff that you just believe. And I was incredibly blessed to have parents who, who just, who loved me. And I wanted to serve the Lord with my whole heart. I wanted to serve the Lord in my life. I thought maybe I'll be a missionary. Maybe I'll do something like that. My dad wanted me to go and get an education. He was big into Paul being a tent maker is the stuff he used to say. He's like, go and get some sort of trade. And so I went to college and I got an engineering degree and I worked at engineering for a couple of years. But like for me, it can absolutely 
desperately serve God in the workplace and we're meant to serve God in the workplace. But for me, there was this calling on my life where it's like I'm spending 40, 50 hours a week like making money for some company doing this thing. And I'm spending the tail ends of my week, the evenings and the weekends doing the stuff that really, really feels like I'm meant to be doing. That matters to me. And uh, God provided in an incredible way. He sent me down to, um, I'd just become an elder of the church um, at, uh, at like 22 years old. Um, again, I've just had people in my life, like John and Vicky, another one like Noel, who's running this, the, the other seminar, who believed in me. At 22 years old, he made me one of the elders of a new church called Liberty that he had just, uh, called Rialto Community Church at the time, um, that he had just planted. And, uh, and just like a week or two after I became an elder, my job sent me down to Cork. For, for nine months. So I would go down to Cork in the morning times on a Monday morning, get up early, drive down. I was just married. We'd do work and uh, like for the whole week, myself and my wife, and then we'd turn around, we'd come back up and we'd put our work into church for the weekend. And, but eventually, God used that thing that I was able to leave my job um, and go and work for the church. That thing in Cork threw some extra money at us that we were able to subsidize our own ways. Any of us who are in Christian ministry know there aren't many jobs that come up in Christian ministry in Ireland, yeah? You're not going to open up the jobs paper and find there's a job as a pastor go in full salary and benefits and all that sort of stuff you have to uh, you have to like take some steps of faith and so the step of faith for us was I left I left my job we managed to save from this job down in Cork and uh, I left my job and I went to work with Noel in Liberty and uh, I had this goal I had this goal within the first year I was going to preach and uh, now that mightn't seem like a big goal to a lot of you guys but if you know me or if you know like, the guys who know me from when I was a teenager cripplingly quiet person, right? I'm the guy who's happy, sitting in the back corner, not speaking. Last thing I want to be is in front of a group of people. But there's something in my heart where I know God has called me to speak. God has called me to teach. When I understand stuff, I automatically, my brain thinks about speaking it to other people, even though it terrifies me to do that, right? So I have this goal. I'm going to preach within a year. And, uh, I wrote a sermon kind of two months like before the end of the year and uh, I rehearsed it. Man, there was this guy called Jay who listened to me preach that sermon five times. Gave his life to the Lord five times at the end of the sermon uh, just to encourage me. I preached it in the mirror holding a hairbrush like an idiot, right? Just because I'm like, what do you even do when you stand in front of a group of people? How do you move? What do you do with your hands? What if I mess up? I still write my notes. I don't depend on them now, but I write them word for word because I'm like, worst case scenario, I just read this and it sounds like me, yeah? Because I I've wrote it the way that I speak. Um, and so I had this goal within the first year, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up and preach. And life had been good. I'd just been married. Um, we were living in Swords, a great apartment. My mom and dad had gone through a rough time. My dad had had some issues like going on with uh, addiction. He came from an addiction background. And the devil towards like that part of his life had kind of got a, a handhold back into him. And he'd started drinking and he'd fallen back into some addiction. And my mom and dad had ended up um, separated. And there was like barring orders. And he was all sorts, of, all sorts of madness going on. But within that year that I worked for the church, God restored their marriage completely. Enabled my mom to, to forgive him. Enabled my dad to get clean for the longest period period of time that he had over like a 10 year period and so I'm on like this this high and I remember um my mom and dad renewed their wedding vows and uh and uh they went away on a honeymoon and came back and the week that they came back was the week that I'm preaching for the first time right so I stand up and I preach and it goes great and nobody boos and uh, and it was it was it was it was like really like encouraging moment and I look down and my mom and dad are sitting like about two-thirds of the way back in like the the the, the middle row like proud as punch and uh, so I'm like this, this highlight of my Christian life, okay? And uh, 
Then I learned that uh, while my mom was away in uh, the Orient Turkey on honeymoon, she'd like developed like uh, picked up like a stomach bug, and in fact, the night before she'd been in hospital with this stomach bug um, because uh, it was like so severe, and she'd signed herself out of hospital to come and hear me preach, which is amazing. But she went back home, and the bug got like worse and worse. Just a random stomach bug. But what had happened was that. Um, she was on some medication for arthritis, and apparently what arthritis is, right, is like an, an overactive immune system. It thinks your joints are under attack. So it sends like stuff there and stuff builds up, and then it's like hard to move your joints. I use my hands because that's where her arthritis was, in her hands. So she just started some medication for this arthritis. Now, because it's an overactive immune system, what does the medication do? It suppresses your immune response so that, uh, so that your body stops sending stuff to these joints. So she picked up what should have been a normal stomach bug that we could like wipe off, but because her immune system was suppressed, she ended up in intensive care. Completely healthy before this, in intensive care of 51 years of age. And, uh, and we were like, I was like, man, this is incredible. We're going in and visiting my man in intensive care, sitting there worried. She was in there for like six weeks, and we had all sorts of prophecies, like she's going to be fine, she's going to be, she's going to be great, people like prayer meetings, hearing from the Lord, God is saying he's going to heal her, all this sort of stuff. Six weeks later, my mom, who was healthy six weeks beforehand and renewing her wedding vows, six weeks later, she passed away and, uh, and goes to be with the Lord. Even people had prophecies. Someone had a prophecy around Lazarus, and I'm like, okay, even last resort, I went in and I held my mom's hand and she was cold, even though only dead for like a for a couple of minutes fully believing that God would raise her from the dead right fully believing if it's down to faith if it's down to like just I'm going to believe that this can happen then it would have happened and uh and she wasn't and uh and so my world is kind of like is rocked and I don't know what way is up and we grieve and we have the funeral and all that sort of stuff and uh that was in September 2007 about about I think it was like 15 weeks later, heading towards December. I'd been on a few missions trips before. Anyone who's ever been on a missions trip knows you go away to, to serve people, but God ends up speaking to you in incredible ways, yeah? They end up being like life-shaping things. So I'm like, this has been my experience before every time I go away on a missions trip. I'm going to go away on a missions trip and give God the opportunity to, uh, to, to speak to me again, to help me process this, what's going on. And... Uh, I go away on the mission trip. We're in Belarus, taking a load of kids for a Christmas camp, a lot of orphaned kids. And, uh, and uh, the first night I lie down in bed and I fall asleep and the guy Brian Kelly who was running the camp comes and shakes me and wakes me up. And he's like, Rob, we just, I just heard from your sister Lorna and she's found your dad dead at home. So mom dies in September. My dad, 52 years of age. We didn't know what happened to him. We eventually, there's a coroner's inquest, all that sort of stuff. Six months later, we figure out he took an aneurysm sitting on the couch at home in his brain. It popped and he died. Um, and so to say, I don't know what way is up anymore. I'm like, I don't know who, I don't know who God is. Like if, I, if, I, if I'm to go off the back of the holy people's words, then God, God didn't do what God said he's going to do. And if, and if this Christian life is what I thought it had been, like life, life would look like this. I do all the right things. I try, I try my best. I try to push the right doors, submit everything to God, and life had worked out brilliant. I had an incredible wife, incredible job. I'm working in my dream job now, working for the church. And I was like, I didn't do anything, I didn't do anything wrong to cause this. And yet, here I am now where I don't have a mother and I don't have a father. And I just kind of existed for about two years in a way that men probably are good at doing, where I just like kind of buried it. Or I just like kind of went through the motions. But man, I became the biggest cynic you can imagine in church. Here I am working for a church and I'm like, I don't even know if there is a God. 
and uh, we would have prophets in and I remember this prophet at one stage like, like gave me a word and, and, and it just didn't resonate at all and I was like, I met with Noel after, I'm one of the elders of the church, I'm like, no, this is all bull. This is all, like this is, this is what are we playing at? What, what, what are we doing just like throwing out these words to try and help people or, or like saying our best thoughts and saying that this is what God is saying when he obviously isn't and I just became this big cynic and uh, I thought I might have dealt with it but it used to come out in weird ways. I was getting like a year and a half into it and uh, I, like all of a sudden like it's like it's like my emotion was just here, just below my eyelids, right? And so I'd be doing something stupid like watching X Factor and it would come out. I'd be watching X Factor and I'd start crying like an idiot, like trying to like wipe my eye in the corner so Patrice, my wife, wouldn't see what's going on. I was just living on this like emotional, like, 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 like tightrope. And uh, probably because I was working for a church, God was, um, God was gracious to me in that uh, had I not been working for the church, I probably would have just drifted away from Christianity, right? I probably would have just like, maybe keep going to church every Sunday, then maybe drop away if I go and I'm just thinking this is all waffle. But, but I'd left my job and so I was forced into a make or break thing. I'm like, either I'm going to go back to this career as an engineer because this isn't what I thought it was um, or God is going to have to show himself to be real to me. And I kept a, I kept a journal at the time and this is actually it uh, from from like 2009, two years after they passed away. And when I read back over it this week, I wrote stuff in it like, we just looked at those verses, right? I wrote stuff in it like, I believe I'm saved, right? I don't believe that's changed. But there's sentences written in there like, that just says, I don't know who God is. It's like, I don't, I don't know God. I believe I'm saved, but I don't, I don't know God. I believe intellectually with this, this stuff, but I don't, I don't know God. And, uh, it was coming up to our anniversary and uh, being the old romantic that I am, I decided to go away by myself <laughs> to a caravan <laughs> for a while. I decided, and Patrice must have known I was in a, in a state. She'd lived with me for two years in this way. And, uh, and I was like, I'm going away and it's like make or break time. It's like, I can't be a hypocrite. I'm not going to keep working for a church getting up and telling people to do this. I don't believe it. I don't know who he is. I don't trust that. I was like, God isn't who I think he is. Because the God I thought he is would have raised me mad from the dead. Yeah, the God I thought he was would have blessed me because I was doing all the right things and sacrificing and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and I went away to this caravan and, uh, and being, the, uh, being the, uh, the engineer that I was, right, the systematic thing, I'm probably even just being a bloke. I went away to a caravan by myself. Why? So that I could cry without anybody seeing me, yeah? So that I, like, if I end up like bawling and screaming and whatever it takes to process this stuff, I was going to deal with my grief, that, uh, that nobody would be around to see me. And, uh, and then being an engineer, I'm like, I'm going to deal with this systematically. And so the first night I get there, I started just writing down this list. Um, and it ended up going on for like three pages. And it's, uh, it's, right, it's right here in this thing. And uh, I started writing down this list of all the reasons I was feeling sorry for myself. All the things that I was missing because my parents had passed away. I had, I had awesome parents, the guys will tell you, and amazing parents. And so I'm like, here's, here's what I'm missing now, God, because I don't have these parents. Here's what I'm going to have to deal with. I'm going to have to process. I'm going to have to question if, uh, if you're going to show yourself to be real. And... Uh, and it was stuff like, is there anything I achieve from now on? I wrote down everything. I went into detail. I'm like, if, if, say if I achieve something from now on, is it going to be bittersweet because I don't have that look of approval in their eyes? You know, for when you achieve something. I'm like, who's going to look after three younger sisters? Who's going to, who's going to look after my three younger sisters? I'm like, eventually when I have kids, who's going to teach me what it means to be a good, a good father to them? I never really had to rely on my mom and dad for money, right? But I knew that if I ended up in dire straits, they were there, that they'd bail me out, yeah? 
Like just all the, all the things that you take for granted that you had with, the, with having great parents. I'm like, I don't have those things anymore. And so I start writing them down. I'm like, who's going who's gonna to guide me? Who's going to give me security? Who's going to teach me how to live right? Who's going to show me how to be a good father? Um, who, who's the person I'm going to be able to trust with? I could talk to my parents about Anton. Who's the person I'm going to be able to trust with all those things? Who's the person I'm going to tell my good news to? Who's the people I'm going to miss when I'm not around? Who are the people who are going to want to be a part of my life? And I started writing down these things, and somewhere towards the end of the list, I'm not sure what happened, but I realized that I was writing a list of the things that God was promising that he would be to me. And I could go and find scriptures for every single one of them, right, to back them up, and, and my scriptural kind of like encyclopedia in my head is gone. I'm like, yeah, that's true, that's true, that's true. And by the end of the list, I wrote down this. I wrote, can God be all these things to me? And then I wrote, yes, I believe he wants to be. And then I wrote, do I trust him to be? And then I wrote, yes. And I underlined it. I'm not exaggerating to say that uh, instantly, instantly, all of my grief left. Instantly, all of my feeling sorry for myself left. Instantly, I realized who God was. I realized that God was actually my father. I prayed the Our Father a million times. I read these verses a million times. But in that moment, the Spirit enabled me to cry out, Abba, Father, which is a cry of recognition. It's a cry of just in that moment, I realized that I was adopted by God. And, and, and my, my, uh, God brought back a story right at that moment into my memory that I wrote down there as well. When my dad used to tell me about, we have a baby dedication this Sunday in church coming. And uh, my dad used to tell me about, about when he dedicated, him and my mom dedicated me to the Lord. And the thing he used to always say was that my mom struggled for months to do it that she wouldn't do it like, that she wouldn't dedicate me to the Lord. Not because she wasn't a Christian, not because she didn't believe this stuff, but it took her a long while to journey to the point of being willing to dedicate me to the Lord because to her it felt like she was giving me away to God. It felt like she was actually giving away responsibility for me to God. And God reminded me that, Rob, it's not just today that I've become your father. I've always been it. You just didn't, you didn't know it yet. You didn't know it yet. But in that moment, God, God became real to me. God became my father. I cried out, Abba. And that's been something that I've grown in over the past, like that was 10 years ago. If that was just an idea, right? Some people would be like, that was just like, you know, a rationalization that you did to help you process your grief or help you bury it. If that was the case, man, that wouldn't have lasted a month, let alone 10 years later for it still to be the truth. All I know is God spoke in that moment. I expected to spend a weekend bawling, crying and whatever. God spoke and, uh, and revealed himself to me to be my good, good father. And, uh, and the tears never came because there was no reason for them anymore. I was, I was restored. I was, I'm adopted by God. And I say this, right? And I, I wouldn't, I absolutely wouldn't say this just to prove a point or just to, to make you listen to me, right? But if, because if, um, it wouldn't be respectful to my parents and how incredible a job they did and how much I love them. But if today I could have my parents back, but to have them back, what I had to do was give up the revelation of God as a father, I wouldn't take them back. Because God is better in every way than they were. I have great parents, but God is better in every single way. He's consistent. He's perfect in all of his ways. He never leaves. He never forsakes. Almighty God in heaven who holds all things together is my dad. Like, like why, why would I feel sorry for myself? 
I've been adopted into the family of God. See, this adoption stuff, guys, is not just a metaphor. Something actually happens. God legally adopts you as his child. He obligates himself to you. And I'm often, like, saying that word obligates himself to you. It often, like, almost causes, like, a bit of, that's, like, it sounds like it's bordering on heresy. How can God be obligated to somebody? Not because we deserved it. Not because we lived a good life. Not because we did anything, which is the way I used to think he operated. But out of grace, God is saying, I'm choosing, Rob, to obligate myself to you as your dad as your father, to walk with you, to guide you, to protect you, to give you advice, to be the person who's proud of you when you achieve stuff. I'm going to be who you need me to be. I'm going to be your father. And God is, is better in every way. See, I used to write in my journal, I'm like, I'm like, I don't know who God is. And I went away thinking, God isn't who I think he is. And I was right, God wasn't who I thought he was. God was better than I thought he was. And he shows himself to be that. And I'm so grateful that God kind of shoehorned me into that position of going away where I was make or break because he made me into who I am. He didn't break me. He made me. And too many of us, I think, my life's journey or my life's message, you know, in the middle, in that two years, in the middle of it, at one stage, a guy called Gary Davison, who was, uh, who like started Assemblies of God Ireland or CCI uh, now, um, he asked to meet with me and I'd never sat with Gary before. It was probably because I was a young leader in a church and he was like head over a movement. And he's like, Rob, at some point in your life, God is going to use what you've been through to stand in front of other people and tell them about it or to help other people get through the same situation. And I was just too polite in the moment to tell him to F off. But that's what was going on in my head, right in that space. I was like, okay, Gary, that's nice. And then moved on. But it's not exaggerating to say that every person I sit with pastorally, every message that I preach, everything that I do, flows back to that moment where God revealed who he is to me. Everyone I sit with who needs help, I'm like, let me tell you what God did for me when I got down to the place where I actually needed him. And too many of us as Christians think that it would have taken, here's the thought that the enemy tempted me with in the middle, was like, Rob, just have faith in God. And it sounds Christian, doesn't it? Just have faith. But it was faith that stopped, that would stop me from actually testing God. Faith that would stop me from actually going to God. A guy called Russell uh, Moore um, talks about adoption and he describes this story. He, he adopted two little Russian kids and he said the most terrifying sound, the most daunting, haunting sound he's ever heard in his whole life was the sound of silence. And he's like, he was silent because as he was walking through a Russian orphanage, which was full of kids left in all sorts of states in cribs around them and none of them ushered, uttered a word, a single word. And they didn't utter a word because they'd learned that when they cried out, nothing happened. And so they'd learned to just be silent and sit there. And I'm convinced that the church is like that. We think, you just have to have faith in God. You just have to have faith in God. But what we're really saying is, don't, don't go to God with that stuff. It's like, have faith in God means like, like just, just keep plodding on, just keep going on. What, what faith actually is, or how it came to me, is, is, is daring to believe that God is who he says he is to the extent that you trust him to be who he is. That if he's not who he is, this isn't going to work, yeah? That, 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 that's what it takes to step into faith in God. It's not just like a stiff upper lip, keep plodding on, keep doing whatever. It's like, no God, if you've said that you want to deal with people on the basis of reality, if you said you want to adopt people, if you said you'd be closer than a brother, if you said that your Holy Spirit would come alive in us, if you said that we can cry out, Abba, Father, then I want that. I'm going to go after it. And my life's message has been become, here's what happened when God brought me to the place of asking him. He showed up and he became my father. He's like, you're just waiting. You know that picture of the prodigal son's dad? like looking out and just waiting for his son to return and legging it out to grab him. And there's like that moment of turning. And uh, 
And that's, what, that's where I've come to, to minister out. Now, the enemy, the enemy hates the fatherhood of God. He hates that reality. And, and the way that you can prove he hates it is that the enemy as the ruler of this world. Are, like you look around and you see, you see what happens when fathers aren't in people's lives. You look around and you see what happens when the enemy has a, a field day. He, why does he hate fatherhood? Because, because, because fatherhood lived out right when I raised my daughter Penny in a right way. Or when we reach out to those who are vulnerable. When we reach out to kids who need, who need help. It's an imaging of God that happens in the world, yeah? That, that when, when, when proper fatherhood happens, when humanity operates in the way that it was intended to operate, that it was sent out into the world to operate, there's an imaging of God, and the enemy is absolutely against that. He's against that because it gives glory to God, and he wants glory for himself. The only way that the enemy gets glory is by us doing things that align ourselves with him rather than with God. So everything that he wants is antithetical to what God wants. If God and the apex of all doctrines is that you're adopted and God has obligated himself to you as his father. The enemy will want to steal that from you in every way that he can. One of the ways, maybe I'm just saying, you just have to have faith. Maybe he'll distract you with fear and doubt. Maybe he'll remind you of your sin and be like, God wouldn't, look what you've done. God wouldn't want you to. You can't approach God as father. Look who you are. Maybe he'll remind you, here's a big one. I had a great dad, but maybe he'll remind you of how big a screw up your own dad was. And be like, man, if God is anything like him, then, 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 then you can't, like, God isn't someone to be trusted. See, the enemy, the enemy goes after fathers in an incredible way. I, I found some, some studies during the week. Andrew, if you put up that next slide for me. Um, and they're stats, and they're American statistics, because it seems that only Americans are interested in doing these kind of statistics. Um, but uh, I couldn't find ones for Europe or for Ireland, but I'd wager that it's the same. But there's over 20 million kids being raised in the States at the moment in fatherless homes, like single-parent homes or foster care or whatever. Um, and it says, research shows that when a child is raised in a fatherless home, he's affected and he or she is affected in the following ways. There are four times greater risk of poverty. They're more likely to have behavioral problems. Twice as great a risk of infant mortality. More likely to go to prison. That came from a stat. 85% of young offenders who are locked up in America right now come from fatherless homes. 85% of them. More likely to commit crime. Seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen. More likely to face abuse and neglect. More likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. Twice more likely to suffer from obesity. And twice more likely to drop out of high school or not finish their education. When the enemy attacks fatherhood, here's what he gets. He gets all of this stuff. Just by taking fathers out of the race. And he might take them out physically or he might just take them out emotionally. Yeah, But there's a father in the home but he's like mentally somewhere else. He's thrown himself into work or he's thrown himself into something else altogether. He loves to attack the fathers because it's an imaging of God to the world. Now God has a better solution than the enemy's schemes. And, uh, and that solution is his church. You know that there's a, a connection between the things that we believe and the things that we actually we actually live out, yeah? There's meant to be a connection between those things. James, you know, when James famously talks about, about faith without works, and he's like, you, you, like, show me your faith, and I'll show you my faith by my works. He's not saying, we already, we've preached the gospel, right? I'm not going to preach a gospel or religion at you now that says you're saved by the things you do in the world or whatever. We get that, yeah? We're saved by grace through faith. It's grace through faith alone, but not faith that remains alone. The Bible is clear again and again and again that the evidence that your faith is in God is the works that you do. 
the way that we know that your faith is in God is through the way that your life has changed from the inside out. See, it does no good to say, I believe this, I believe this, I believe that. But if I followed you around for a day and looked at your life, I couldn't elicit any of those beliefs from what I see you doing, how I see you interacting, how I see you sacrificing, what, 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 what you actually value. It's easy, guys. Easiest thing in the world to come along to a church on Sunday morning and raise our hands and sing some songs, listen to somebody who makes us feel good about ourselves and go away and not live that out in any way, shape or form. The church is God's plan for the redemption of the world. Through his son, we've been entrusted as co-heirs with Christ. We've been entrusted with this same message. We've been sent out into the world with this message. And, and, and we need, it, needs to, it needs to be more than just thoughts. There needs to be more than just, oh, we accept the doctrine of, uh, of adoption by faith. We accept that. That's incredible. But if you looked at our lives, you wouldn't know. It doesn't change how we father. It doesn't change how we reach out to a vulnerable world. It doesn't change how we reach out to kids who are in need of father. It doesn't change how we relate to one another if we understand ourselves as brothers and sisters. There needs to be a change. I remember um, just this week, I saw a little quote from Francis Chan where he says, like, Simon says, pat your head. And we all pat our heads. And Jesus says, go make disciples. And we say, I must memorize that verse. <laughs> like, there's a disconnect between our, our belief and our obedience. Where our obedience is meant to show the world what we believe. Yeah? It's meant to be a picture. Like the church is meant to image Christ. We're called his body, yeah? We're called like people look. They're meant to see what Jesus looks like by what his church looks like. They're meant to see what the Father looks like by what his church looks like as they father. There's this connection between it. Like, how am I for time? 15 minutes, okay. Um, and it's there, right? You'll find it in scripture. It's there, you know, separation of the sheep and the goats. Jesus is like, is like when I was, I, was, I was naked and you clothed me. I was, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was in prison and you visited me. When did we do that for you, Lord? You did it when you did it for one of the least of these. And he does it to the other people. He's like, away from me to hell, basically. And he's like, you didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. You didn't. And they're like, we never saw you. If we had a saw you, probably we would have clothed you. Like, but he's like, when you didn't do it for the least of these, you failed to do it for me. We need to be people who do things for, for the least of these. It's, it's, it's something that lives out our faith. There's this, this connection is always there. It's not just love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. The second is like it. It's love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just trust the Lord to forgive your sins. It's like you who've been forgiven are now obligated to forgive other people and show people what forgiveness looks like. So when they see it, you can point back to the source of forgiveness and act as signposts back to Jesus. Paul and Philippians like imitate Christ's humility, prefer one another, do everything you can to get on with one another because here's how Christ lived on your behalf. You don't just accept how Christ lived on your behalf and it not change you from the inside out. You accept it and then you apply it to your life in a way that it changes your behavior. Yeah, and again, I'm not talking about changing our behavior to please God in any way. I'm talking about there should be a reality to our faith that changes us from the inside out. If there's not, then is it actually faith? That's why James, like, yeah, tell me all day about your faith if you want. I'm going to show you what my faith looks like through my works. I'm not trying to earn God's favor. It's like it has to be a landing point for this. Why am I saying all that? Because if the doctrine of adoption. <laughs> of the Father God has adopted us as his child, if that's the apex of all doctrines, then surely it should be amongst our primary concerns how we are reflecting that to the world. How are we reflecting that to the world? To me, it seems ludicrous. There's a friend of mine who's a social worker, and she's like, Rob, there's kids living in crazy situations in Ireland, and we can't take them out of them because there aren't enough foster homes. 
Like they're being left in mad situations. We can't take them out of those situations because there aren't enough families who are willing to take in someone else. To me, it shouldn't be the case that that's the fact and it's also the fact that there are Christians who have spare rooms and spare love to give. Those two things shouldn't both be able to exist at the same time. If we're actually Jesus' church. It comes out, it's meant to come out in everything that we do. People should be able to look at the church and see what an adoption culture looks like because at the core of it, the gospel tells us this, that we are all orphans who God has adopted. Now, if we were to reflect that to the world, I'm convinced that we all should be adopting kids. I challenged my church last week. I want every single one of us to be involved in adoption or fostering the kids. If you're not in a position to take in a kid, be in a position to help somebody pay to take in a kid. Whatever it looks like, it's our obligation to live out the gospel to the world amongst the least of these. What did Jesus say? He didn't do it for the least of these. He didn't do it for me. We think Jesus wants our hallelujahs and our dancing around and he just wants us to go out and help the least of these. As if we're doing it for him. Worship that's lived out every day. And guys, that's lived out in a million ways in my life. I'm not perfect. I'm growing in it. Myself and Patrice are praying about fostering kids right now. Trying to figure it out. We're walking in it and so I'm not here as like a person to finish product, like trying to say, look at me, I'm a die grade, here's a bloody, nah. I'm, I'm walking this out, but I encourage you. See what it looks like to walk it out. I want to finish by uh, just showing you a little video of, uh, of a project that we've got involved in, which isn't just a charity project, but is a reflection of the father heart of God. A father to the fatherless and defender of widows is God in his holy habitation, says Psalm 68. If that's the case, then what should the church who are meant to image him to the world, look like. Um, we found ourselves in Lesotho, as I told you, a tiny little country about the size of Northern Ireland. The whole country is a mountain range. Its lowest point is higher than our highest point. Stunningly beautiful country. But HIV AIDS has come through. One in four people have HIV. Life expectancy for an adult has dropped to 42 years of age, which is just about the age you have a batch of kids, yeah? And so their adults' generation are passing away and leaving behind a group of kids with nobody to look after them. 250,000, in a place the size of Northern Ireland, 250,000 AIDS orphans right now over there. 125,000 of them fall into a classification called orphaned, vulnerable children, meaning those who've been identified as being subject to exploitation, to abuse, to manipulation. I could tell you stories all day long of kids who we've come across. Um, but I won't, because when you hear the stories, you can't unhear them. <laughs> Kids in mad situations right now. We have a chance as a church to image the fatherhood of God to them. Um, the video I'm going to show you, we just got back from a month and we keep like a video log of it. Um, we call the project One Day because we live with this eschatological hope that one day Jesus returns, yeah? One day all of the conditions, one day the field day that the enemy is having with fatherlessness, one day all of that is turned around when Jesus comes back in victory and rules and reigns here, yeah? One day that all changes. But we understand ourselves as the church to move towards that one day with focused intent, one day at a time. That each day we get to be an opportunity to say, today, Lord, our Father, today let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, uh, and so we've been keeping like a, a, a vlog of it. And uh, this is like the latest one um, from just when we got back uh, this month. <laughs> 